0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Ask Katie anything. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. If you have not signed up for my attachment workshop, it will be starting tomorrow, I believe. This is a Thursday. It goes out on Friday. And it is a two, so it's two Fridays in a row. They're each two hour sessions. Yes, it will be recorded. Yes, it will be available after the fact, but there will be downloadable worksheets. The great thing about accessing it and paying for the live version is you get to ask questions live and get your questions answered from me and chat with other people and get other insights. So that's the added benefit of it. However, if you aren't able to join us live, because I understand people work and schedules and blah, blah, it will be recorded and you can access it. After the fact, but if you're able to join live, even just for a portion, it could be really helpful. Okay, let's jump into today's questions. Question number one says, "Hey Katie, it is so hard for me to do the things that are really important to me. I have ADHD and anxiety, and I get so much anxiety even if I break it into extremely small steps. I do double, du- I do body doubling, tell myself to do it imperfectly, and even assuage that fear by reminding myself that I can correct the imperfect one later." I just get so flustered, despite taking perfectionism and beat the big steps out of the equation. I keep avoiding things that really matter because every time I think of them, I get overwhelmed. Even just to sit down and open the notebook to a page, uh, to page one to review just the first sentence. What gives? Why can't I start in tiny steps and do it imperfectly, or start at all? I'm medicated for my ADHD, and my meds do work. I've also already tried every ADHD medication, both on and off label per multiple psychiatrists. And the same goes for anti-anxiety medications. I don't think that's where it's coming from. We'll talk about this. Um, and supplements off and on label and combinations that don't interact with the other meds that I require. I'm also in therapy. Do you have any ideas of what this is? And more importantly, ideas of how to move forward on the things that matter so much to me. Okay. Great question. We have a comment on this as well. Um, Whenever I hear from people that there are things that we we really want to do, they're important, and we just can't muster up the motivation, the uh, excitement, maybe the oomph to start or to finish or to get in the middle. It doesn't even matter, right? We just don't have the oomph to do the thing that we want to do. My little spidey senses are always wondering about depression. Now, I know anxiety and depression they can hang out together. But here's, just stay with me a little bit on this, okay? Obviously, not a psychiatrist. I'm glad you're trying medication. I'm glad your ADHD meds are working because ADHD and depression have something in common that we don't talk about enough, okay? And that has to do with dopamine. Dopamine itself, dopamine transporters in our brain, we're lacking in those things. If those of you who have never heard anybody talk about this before, ADHD means that we have lower levels of dopamine and lower levels of what are called dopamine transporters, meaning it takes the dopamine from some parts of the brain and brings it into the reward center to make an activity rewarding, which is why people with ADHD have a really tough time focusing on something that's not exciting to them because they're already low on the the dopamine. And so they're essentially like heat seeking missiles looking out into the world for dopamine. And if that item that you're supposed to do is like, oh, you're supposed to reply to this, these like 10 emails and none of it like, none of it means anything to us. None of it's going to get us anywhere better. It's taking too long. It's very detail oriented. It's not around something that that we find exciting. It's really hard to motivate and we can struggle to start, finish, whatever, right? Okay. Okay. So keeping that in mind that that's where ADHD, and I'm being very simplistic, there's obviously a lot more to it, but this is a key component of ADHD. And the reason that we focus on some things and not on others, the the belief that ADHD means we can't concentrate or that we're easily distracted is not fully true it's, it's, we're easily distracted when we're doing a task that we don't find rewarding. That's not exciting. It's not new. A lot of times in ADHD, I forget there's like four motivators they talk about and I'm not going to remember them all, but it's like nuance. So be new or not nuance, sorry, something being new, something being, um, they say novel. That's the word I was looking for. They see something that's like time constraint. Like you don't have any time. You're at the very end. That's why procrastin like ADHD uh, people will like procrastinate, procrastinate. And then at the very end, they'll, Oh, they'll get it done right before, right in time. Right. So we need some kind of alternative motivator. And like I said, there's more of those. and I'm not going to remember them. Um, but depression is also a lower level of dopamine. And again, I know I'm simplifying both ADHD and depression as full, you know, uh, I don't know. I don't want to call them mental illnesses necessarily because I don't believe ADHD is that, but they're, they're totally different, but related in this dopamine area. Okay. So hang with me. Obviously I know there's more with each, but because of that lower level of dopamine and lo- lower level of dopamine trans transporters, I wonder if that's what's going on here. I, Even though your ADHD medication is helping and it's a stimulant, it helps, gives us more energy, can help us focus. I don't know, and I'd have to do some deep diving. I don't believe that ADHD medication assists with low levels of dopamine. SSRIs, maybe anti-anxiety medications, may assist with that. But part of me just thinks that we're struggling with depression, and it's not fully treated because we have lower levels of dopamine. And I think that might be why doing things is hard. There's no real reward. It's not time constrained. There's no real pressure. It's not that exciting or new. Does that make sense? Now, that's just one hypothesis. Others could be that, you know, even if our ADHD medication is helping with our focus, it's not helping with our energy level. Now, only you're going to know what your energy level is. And I don't know if that's where this is coming from. But a lot of my patients that no matter how small we make the steps, if they can't do it, you know, it's like, that's just still too much. I just can't motivate. I can't start. I always think it's depression. I know that again, might be too simplistic. I would love a follow-up if you, you know, feel free to ask another question. But I really do think that that's where this could be coming from. And it's almost like the anhedonia. It's, it's almost like you have half of it, right? Because you still know these things matter to you and you want to get them done, but you don't have the motivation to do them, right? And so it's like, I can't make those things happen. Anhedonia, if you guys don't know, is the, the lack of enjoyment of things that we used to enjoy. And that could be a piece of it. Like, you know, logically, you, these things matter to you. You want to get them done. But internally, you're like, I don't really care. I don't actually like that anymore. I don't want to do that. And so those are kind of like, I know that's not a question, but that's kind of me posing the question. Do you find that to be true? Even though these things are important to you, there's something in there that's preventing you from following through. Is that coming from a place of anhedonia? Maybe. I also wonder how you talk to yourself because I know nothing can shut us down and stop our motivation more quickly than shit talking. And I don't know if we're telling ourselves like, it's never going to be good enough. You're not going to amount to anything. Like, I don't know what the negative self-talk that you experience, what it is, and that could be preventing this as well. And that could come. A lot of my patients with ADHD struggle with that because growing up, for those of you who didn't grow up with ADHD, you can be told before you're properly diagnosed and getting support, you can be told that you're stupid and that you're lazy and that um, you're never going to be good at anything. And you know, kind of like told that the way that you interact with the world isn't right. And that can be really detrimental to our self-talk. And that's why also not just the dopamine transponders and dopamine levels in our brain, but I think that can also feed into anxiety, depression, and things like that, right? So those are a couple of my hypotheses. I wish I had like an answer, right? But everybody's different. And the fact that you get overwhelmed right away and you, you can't even start and it feels over, you know, it's, it feels like too much from the get, even if these big steps are broken into smaller ones, That makes me suspicious of depression. But let me know, okay? I could be wrong. Again, answer those questions for yourself and we'll see where we end up, right? Now, there was a comment on this said, as someone who also struggles with ADHD, I get this. I've tried so many things to overcome it and work with it, but ADHD wins every time. Just recently though, I've been wondering if maybe it's got to do with task initiation, like trying to jump in time to enter skip rope or emotion regulation, could I be self-sabotaging my efforts as a way to keep my emotions stable? Huh? I do get rather perfectionistic and lose control of my emotions when things go wrong. Thanks, Katie. You could be. So the one thing that's also interesting, if we're, like you said, like trying to get into skip rope or what I'd call like double dutch or getting into a jump rope, you're like, oh wait, right? How do I break in? We can struggle to do that and to jump in, right? That initiation, because we worry about the failure later. And so we can sabotage up front to prevent ourselves from feeling overwhelmed or upset at a later time. Like this person said, I lose control of my emotions when things go wrong and I'm rather perfectionistic. It reminds me of this quote. If anybody loves The Office as much as I do, Andy. So Andy's, um, I forget his name in real life, but it'll come to me, Ed Helms, I think. Anyway, he is talking about how Andy Bernard, he's like, Andrew Bernard doesn't lose competitions, or I forget the word he uses, like doesn't lose things. He, uh, he either wins or he quits because it's unfair. And in a way, this is kind of what you're doing. You're like quitting before, because if it doesn't work out perfectly, which we can never know, right? And we can't control everything. We can only do the best that we can do we look at a task and we're like, that task could be hard. I could not be good at it. It might not go well. Then those are all very risky statements to a person like us. That's reactive, right? Emotionally reactive when things don't go our way. And so instead of our brain, right? Our brain and body are wired to look for threat. So our body and brain look out into that, into our world and look at this particular thing and say, that's high emotional risk, And it's not worth it. So instead of saying that and acknowledging it and working on that reactivity, which is something you can do in therapy. EMDR is great for this. CBT is great for this. Give that a try. Um, But instead of potentially initiating uh, an activity or a behavior that has a high emotional risk, it's like, let's stop it before it starts. And so that's why we're like, we can't get into that jump rope, right? We're like, no, it's too risky. So we sabotage. And the sabotaging always, I think people always assume sabotage means that we're ruining something that's already existing, but sabotage can mean just sabotaging ourselves and our progress. And so we're not even able to initiate because of what that could mean, what, what risk that involves. Does that make sense? I hope so. And so, yes, I think you're sabotaging your efforts as a way to keep your emotions stable. I think you're, pre- you're protecting yourself. And, you know, give yourself kudos, like, good job. This helped me at some point. But right now it's like hindering. And so we have to figure out how to acknowledge that risk. Be honest with ourselves that it's hard and that it, it causes an emotional reaction, I guess is the word I'm looking for. It's almost like it causes some dysregulation. And instead of not doing the thing because of that discomfort, can we acknowledge that discomfort and find a way to soothe it in another way? That's the real question. That's where therapy comes in. That's where I work for behavioral change, right? Like I currently am in therapy and we've been working on my reactivity to potential um, rejection and how high risk rejection feels to me. And it's interesting to consider why that's there? So I encourage all of you to do some digging, not to just accept it. Like, oh, I just am sensitive to rejection. Most of us are, but deeper than that, what is it that I think rejection is going to say about me? Where does that come from in my life? Maybe it's childhood. Maybe it's teenage me. Maybe it—you know—it could be any number of years back or a, a experience we just had, like maybe last year. Like, where is that coming from? Where the the concern of rejection? feels like this huge, huge, huge risk or this huge emotional you know, concern. So we would prefer not to engage because that's what I've been doing is I've moved to a new area and I've struggled to reach out to people and ask if they wanna get together and like make plans because what if they say no? What if they don't text back or call back? Like, ooh, can I, can I handle that? What I feel is like a wound, right? And the answer for a while has been like, no, I don't think I can handle that. Like I'm dealing with grief from family and it's, ugh, it's a lot. So instead, you know, instead of just acting out of that and not engaging because of quote unquote, what could happen, I'm digging into where that comes from, what purpose that serves for me and why that feels better. Just be curious, again, not judgmental. We don't have to always say, I hate that. I need to change it. And here's why it's more about like, I'm doing this for a reason. And what is that reason? You know, it. Not to, I feel like I always repeat myself, but like there's that analogy, like the Chesterton's fence that I talk about all the time. That you can't remove a thing until you completely understand its purpose. And let's do that and figure out what the purpose is. Okay. Okay. I feel like I'm getting off base. Let's go into question number two. This question says, Hi Katie. A lot of the time during sessions with my therapist, I will say things like, I'm restricting my eating. I know it's because I want to feel like I have control over something when everything else feels like a literal shit show. Or I am self-harming because I need to be able to see and feel where the pain is coming from. Or, quote, I want to die, but it's more like a passive wish, or I'll tell her something else and then go on explaining my thought process behind whatever it is I'm talking about. Amazing. You have such amazing insight. I feel like I'm answering the questions they're about to ask before they have a chance to ask them. My current support team at the hospital writes weekly reports and, and the other week the doctor wrote that I am a woman with a lot of insight. You are. I'm scared that the fact that I quote unquote know the answers to all these things can be interpreted as if I'm doing better than I am. I am not doing well at all. I am a complete wreck. I have complex PTSD, attachment issues, some sort of dissociative disorder, and all the other fun things that come along with experiencing severe emotional neglect as well as psychological and physical abuse growing up. If one of your parents behave, or if one of your patients, sorry parents, if one of your patients behave like this, who would you think that they were doing pretty well and maybe they didn't actually need therapy as they seem to know the reason behind why they act the way they do? Or would you recognize what's really going on and what is actually going on? Hmm. I love this question. And someone in the comments said almost exactly what I want to say. And that is, this is a defense mechanism and this is intellectualization, but let's talk about this. Now I do love when my patients have insight Insight doesn't mean that we're str- not struggling or that we're doing great. Insight means that we have a deeper level of understanding because we're doing the work. It's really helpful. It moves therapy along more quickly and it could, because it saves time, like you said, you know the answers to the questions before they even ask them. That saves us time in session. But that doesn't have any that has zero correlation with how you're doing because understanding and doing are very different things. And any good therapist should know this because I am a therapist and I am in therapy. I understand a lot about the workings of of why I do what I do, but I still can't fucking stop doing it. Right? Knowing and doing are different. And I've talked about this a a lot, but I say it not in this context. I'll always say like, just because I know better doesn't mean I do better. That's what I'm saying. I went to school for psychology, for six years, I saw patients and studied, you know, different therapeutic techniques for an additional five years. And I've been online for 12 doing research for you guys forever, right? So arguably you could be like, you should know everything. You should have all this knowledge. That doesn't help me in my day to day. I can know it and still, I know you can even recognize and be like, this isn't healthy, but how do I stop it? That's the hard part. That's why you need somebody else. That's why I've been in therapy. And I've gotten some shitty comments over the years in general, because people are assholes and that's fine. They think they know me, but they don't. But um, from people who will be almost concerned that I'm in therapy as a therapist, they're like, wait, why would you need to do that? That must mean you're really bad at your job or some shit like that. And I'm like, no, it actually is so that I can be a better person. So that then actually in turn, I can be a better therapist. And you can't therapize yourself. I'm sorry if someone led you to believe that you can. And I know a lot of you don't have access to therapy, and you're doing a lot of work on yourself. But there are limitations to that. There's something about being in a room, in person, with someone, and sharing the things that are difficult to talk about, and your thought processes, and where you're at, and what you're struggling with, and get some maybe in. in more insight but also to get challenged to think differently or to try things differently or to have them call out like even just last week in therapy my therapist had said something like um I forget the word she actually used but she was like you used this and she used a phrase oh it's not my fault it was like the you know had a lot of death in my family it's not my fault and she was does that ring true now and I had forgotten that I'd even used that phrase I had forgotten that we even talked about that like, what? It's stuff like that. I can't do that for myself. It's too emotionally charged. So you having insight, and it's a very roundabout way, you having insight doesn't mean that you're doing better than you're doing. I wouldn't think that. I would just recognize and acknowledge and probably draw your attention to your urge to intellectualize your situation. I might even stop you. Like, even as I was reading through, you're like, sometimes during a session, I'll say, I'm restricting my eating. I know it's because I want to feel, I'd be like, I know, you know, uh, da, 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 da. hold on, hold right there. Okay, so you're restricting your eating. How long is this going? Go? Like, I wouldn't even let you intellectualize it because know, I know through experience personally and with my patients and talking to them, so many of you in our community for so many years that allowing that same record to go again, meaning that same insight slash excuse or explanation is actually doing more harm than good. By you saying, and I know it's because of this, we're almost like minimizing what's happening. And I would encourage to, I would challenge you to see that. Does that make sense what I'm saying? So I would, no, I just to answer your question. No, I wouldn't think that you're doing better than you are. Um, insight is helpful. It moves things more along more quickly because we don't have to explain all of that, right? You already understand the things that are going on. And it'll also mean that you are able to, what's the word? Not accept, but like understand and utilize some of the tools or some of the, the things that we're working on, okay? Now, there was a comment that said, Katie, same thing happens to me. I think it's because I'm studying to be a thera- therapist myself, yet I don't know what treatment would be the best for me. I know I have to learn to like and to take care of myself in a deeper way, but I don't know how to do that. Actually, no one seems to know. What would you say to someone like me who was abused sexually and emotionally and neglected and therefore cannot love themselves or think they deserve nice things so they engage in self-harm behaviors? Thanks, Katie. I guess um, I would say to you to try a different style of therapy. Just like myself, I've been in talk therapy since I was 15, um, off and on. So on for two years, maybe off for a year, back on for another year, forever. And then the last like four years, thanks COVID, I wasn't in therapy at all. And then we moved. And so it took me a little while to find someone. And now I've been in therapy for, I don't know, it's like three months, but it's EMDR. It's not talk therapy. And so what I really encourage you, if you feel like I've tried certain, t- I've tried talk therapy, let's say, and it's helped some, but not a ton. Let's try EMDR. Or let's say you've tried EMDR or you've tried somatic experiencing or some different type. Maybe we try talk therapy, just basic talk therapy, or maybe we want CBT. We want more cognitive behavioral approaches. We want more homework, more structured stuff. Um, Since there's trauma in your background, my, I would, I don't want to say limit, but I would focus on things like EMDR, trauma-focused CBT or TF-CBT, basic talk therapy, schema, internal family systems, and somatic experiencing only because those, and I'm sure there's others, but those are the primary trauma treatments. Let's stick with those. You're not gonna know what treatment is best for you. There's no amount of intellectualization that can tell you that because so much of it depends on the therapist themselves. And we know through research, which I'm sure you're learning in school, how important that therapeutic relationship is and how that is actually the indicator of how helpful therapy is gonna be. More so than the modality, meaning the style of therapy, more so than the you know um, the medication on board, also more so than the the cost of the therapy, more so than how long we've known this therapist. It's all about how well we feel connected to that therapist, how heard, seen, and understood we feel in session. That's what's the most important, and so let's find you someone who helps you feel seen, heard, and understood. Okay. Now there was another uh, add on. I think this is the final add on. Yeah. It says, not sure if this is an add on or a variation of the same question, but what happens when the quote unquote crisis appears to be over, but it doesn't feel like the crisis is actually over. I went from being stable on the same medication regimen for 10 years to being hospitalized five times in a 10 month period. I also had to spend time in a residential facility after three of those hospitalizations in addition to an intensive outpatient therapy after each. I had barely made it back to work when my now ex-husband decided things were too hard and basically ran away from our marriage. My last hospitalization was almost four years ago, but I'm still very much not okay. After so much treatment, there were also groups that my insurance pushes rather than pay for individual therapy and weekly sessions with a private therapist who I have since lost access to. I'm so sorry. I also know all of the right answers. I know that I'm supposed to think and do when things start spinning out of control. I know my brain starts beating me up, but in the moment, I can't actually do any of those. And trigger warning, but my suicidal thoughts aren't as desperate now um, as they were then, but they feel like it's a matter of when, not if. It will end that way. And I will never go back to the hospital again. It was horrible. I know it's always horrible. I think the word traumatizing might be a bit too strong, but it was definitely scarring but it also feels like if the thoughts aren't to that level, I don't really need or deserve the help. Hmm. Okay. My, my advice to you is to express this to your therapist, whether that's a group or individual, or whatever you have access to at this point. I know you said the individual or private therapist you don't have access to right now. We have to communicate that to them. We have to let them know. When a crisis is over and we appear to be doing well, if, if we do, our therapist doesn't ask the right questions or if we don't share that with our therapist, then they can't know and they can't take any additional action they can't petition your insurance to force uh, their hand to give you one-on-one therapy. We can't, we don't have that evidence if we haven't discovered this yet. And I only say that because sometimes I have patients who will appear to be doing great and they won't say shit about it. And so I will think they're doing better, right? Because they're essentially lying either directly or by omitting. And I'm not saying lying as like a, you're lying to me, like I'm mad. It's just a matter of fact, you're not telling the truth or you're not telling the truth because you're not sharing all the information. Either way, your therapist isn't aware. And in order for you to get more care and support, they need to be made aware. And it's very common for us to feel like we're quote unquote out of the crisis state, but we still feel in crisis because when it's almost like um, the best example I could give is let's say we had a horrific earthquake in our area. And everything, our our home crumbled, neighbor's homes crumbled, everything was disaster. Now, okay, let's say our homes got rebuilt and there hasn't been an earthquake and we're fine. It's like two years later, you could say, oh, we're out of crisis. No, but that's when we're out of the actual crisis. And then I believe the mental health crisis begins because when we're under threat and it's such a severe threat and that crisis, we can pull it together to get through it now, yes, I know you're hospitalized and you were working through things that way, but those were just crisis symptoms in the moment. And now we're dealing with like what I would call the ripple effects of it. And you could say that maybe it's like lesser than symptoms or they're not as intense, but they're still there and they're still important to acknowledge. And so my encouragement is to speak up about how you're doing, to be honest, as honest as you feel you can about your experience and what's happening. I know you don't want to go back to the hospital I would clearly communicate that, that hospitalization is not helpful. It's actually worse, but you need more support. And hopefully that can open up, you know, individual therapy again and all that stuff. Okay. Let's move on to question number three. Question number three says, hi, Katie, how do I choose the most important or urgent issue to work on in therapy? Whenever I start going through one issue with my therapist, I start to think about all the others and that maybe we should be working on something else. Interesting. I think this is common. That's often the case with the things that I haven't even brought up yet. Like there's so much to go through, but I also don't want to jump from one issue to another and just touch it on the surface. Thank you so much. Okay. Great question. The truth about this is that when it comes to therapy, I'm going to walk you through the therapist view. Okay. First and foremost is safety. And, and that kind of goes in, in tandem or like two sides of the same coin is like safety and legal responsibility. And that means that the most urgent or important issues are the ones that could harm you or someone else. And so I assess for those first. So that's always number one, safety and legal, uh, what would you call it? It's like mandate, mandated things. I don't know what you'd want to call it, but the legal implications of my job. So that's the first part. Move through that. Then second is what is bothering you most in your day to day. And I say that because I know that's not the deeper issue, but as someone who works with a lot of patients over the years, the self-injury urges and eating disorder behaviors, I want to get those things under control, at least somewhat, before diving into the other stuff, because that's where what I call like our resource building phase. And that resource building phase, we're all while we're uh, working on the current most applicable issues today, we're coming up with ways to cope and calm our system down so that when we go into the deeper rooted issues, we have those tools to use. Does that make sense? And so that's how I move in. We cannot, and maybe I should have expressed this more clearly in the past, but we cannot just jump into the root. I know I talk about how important the root of the root is, right? We cannot just treat the symptoms and expect it to all be better because that doesn't help it, right? That only helps it for a minute and then it's back. And so, but that's how we kind of work top down. Now, I would love to be able to just dive into the root of it, but that's usually too much too fast. And we haven't built resources enough for coping skills yet to be able to weather what comes out of that because the dysregulation and the symptom increase that can happen with that is, is too intense. And so that's why that's the order that I work in, okay? Now, when we feel like there's so much to go through, let your therapist know of this. Um, maybe even recommend or request that you do a broader timeline, it doesn't mean we have to be able to talk about everything. We can even say like, oh, something happened when I was about 10 or 12, but I'm not ready to talk about it yet. We can say stuff like that. Cause I know how uncomfortable it can be to say the things that we've kept secret out loud for the first time. And even though it's in therapy and we know it's confidential, that doesn't change the fact there's another human that we're telling it to. And that can feel very uh, icky, right? And so give yourself time. Let your therapist know that this is happening. Tell them that you want to work on it little by little. Maybe it could behoove you to make a list of the things that you think you need to work through. You can give that to your therapist if you feel okay doing so. But everybody feels like there's a lot to go through because we, in our brains, we make these lists of like all these individual um experiences and our response to them and we kind of bup, 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 bup. we stack them up and we think oh it's so much i'm never going to work through this is never going to be okay not realizing that like 10 of each of those things are somewhat related in the same scenario and will be processed pretty much simultaneously right and things that are very similar which uh, unfortunately we have a lot of patterns in our life that's what may, you know dysfunction or not we all have patterns of behavior those things that are similar that way also tend to be processed or worked through, or uh, I don't want to use the word resolved, but like coping skills can benefit all of those in the same way. And so we end up being able to manage and process through chunks of things at a time. So while I know you feel like there's so much to go through, I'm not disagreeing with you there. I'm just saying that let's not focus on this huge hill in front of us or mountain in front of us, Instead, let's look down and climb over that pebble that's right in front. So one thing at a time. It's like that old saying, what does it say? Like um, the every great journey starts with that first step or something. Start with that first step. Let your therapist know that I feel like there's a shit ton of stuff we got to go through. There's so much. I haven't even told you about everything and I don't feel comfortable. Like be as honest as you can. We don't have to share everything right away. We don't have to be able to do that. But we just have to acknowledge that that is you know, a possibility that there's more there, that we're not quite feeling good yet about this, that we feel overwhelmed. Um and also it's good for her to know or him to know, whoever your therapist is, to know that you don't want to jump from one issue to another and just touch it on the surface. You want to like get in there. Um yeah, I hope that I hope that makes sense. And let me finally, there's comments on this I'm gonna get into. So let's start at the top, right? Legally uh like safety and legally mandated things, then the symptoms or issues that are bothering the most right now. So we can build up resources so we can better manage. And then we get into the root. So maybe it's in this like, what are our daily battles and patterns, things that we don't feel like we have coping skills or resources to help us manage. What are those things? And let's start there and write them down. Even if you feel like it's a shit ton of things, write them down and give them to your therapist because they can help make sense of it and parse it out all the while telling them, I don't want to just jump from one thing to the next. I want to really get into like, what do these all have in common? Okay. Now, somebody asked as an add-on, I also struggle with this. I feel like there is so much going on that I don't even know what to bring up first. I started in therapy because I had postpartum depression, but it quickly became apparent that I had other issues stemming from a childhood of severe emotional neglect, as well as psychological and physical abuse from my adoptive mother. I felt like we got through the DDP part quickly, but then so that's the the DDP is that the postpartum depression or anyways okay um, maybe it's PPD that was what I would assume. But then the other issues kept popping up in each session. As a result of this, we never got to work on one thing thoroughly, and I feel like nothing was ever resolved. Ugh, I hate that. We just opened up wound after wound after wound, never closed any, or even just put band aids over the ones that were bleeding the most. After a while. I was exhausted, and I couldn't bring myself to tell her about other things that, that I wanted to talk about because we never circled back to anything. Not even when I tried to bring it up again at a later date. How do I get over the fear of telling my new therapist about all of my issues? Um One quick thing, and then we'll dig into it. Not everyone, but a huge portion of those of us who struggle with postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety or postpartum psychosis, any number of things, usually that is an indicator and usually meaning more than 50% of the time is an indicator that we had something happen to us or we already had a mental illness or struggles with mental health prior to having a child. It's like having a child and that hormone fluctuation and just the stressors of having a child um, triggered that and made it worse or exacerbated an already existing condition or symptom. Does that make sense? So I just want to put that out there for anybody if you're thinking like what's wrong with me? Nothing's wrong with you. It's incredibly normal. Um sometimes it's just that triggering event. Now, when it comes to seeing a therapist and talking about all of your issues, let your therapist know about this past experience. That's going to be the most important piece here because we don't want to repeat. Tell your therapist just like you told me. You can even just read from this question, like copy and paste it onto a doc and print it out or save it on your phone because This working on the postpartum depression and then just opening wounds without any circling back, without any processing, honestly, to me shows that your therapist probably specialized in postpartum depression and not anything else and didn't understand trauma work, wasn't trauma informed enough, didn't realize that what they were doing was so detrimental. It all sounds bad and I'm so sorry, but I would tell your therapist first about that experience and what you found so distressing. And you could end with, so we're telling her about all of this, like we opened up these things and we never close them. I don't have any coping skills and it feels really overwhelming, almost like it did more harm than good. And be like, and because of that experience, I'm afraid to tell you about all this stuff because I, I can't, I can't tolerate it getting worse. Just be honest. You don't have to have the answers. You don't have to know how to say it. We just have to express what we didn't like about that past experience and what we found so detrimental. And that in and of itself should ensure that it won't happen again. Now, obviously, a good question to ask this new therapist is, hey, are you at least trauma informed because I got some shit I need to work on? And I think that's kind of why this other one went not so great. Make sure they're trauma informed, then share with them what you didn't like and like, you know, what you what you're looking for. And then slowly but surely, you'll work through it. Okay. 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 Now moving on to question number four, it says, hi, Katie, I have crippling emetophobia. That's a fear of vomit. And it is literally ruining my life. Help. I suffer from anxiety, depression, and PTSD from abuse. But I also have this crippling fear, which is so damn embarrassing. I've had it since I was eight. I'm 17 now. I'm constantly worried day in and day out about getting sick, being sick, or someone close to me being sick. It's exhausting. I wake up anxious and then because I haven't eaten I'll feel nauseous which just ties into my anxiety and keeps piling on from there. I always worry about other people and how they're feeling and I'm constantly conscious of when I last washed my hands and where they have been since. I don't eat either when uh, or I don't eat either when I'm really bad, too scared, which is mostly all the time lately. I've been told that I'm too much to handle, which just makes me feel bad. Where I am, um, Where I am, the stomach flu is going around. Oh no. And whenever I hear about it, I have a full blown panic attack and I can't stop shaking. My heart racing, bawling my eyes out. You get the gist. I need help. I know I do. And I have a therapist and she kind of knows about it. She should know about it. Like this is your number one, again, remember, number one issue right now. But I I have other more important things to deal with than this stupid phobia. I know, but this is impairing your life. We can get into the other stuff, but we'll talk this through. Any insight on what I can do would be amazing. Okay, now, whenever I hear about phobias, any phobia, social phobia, emetophobia, arachnophobia, you name the phobia. When we have a fear of something, it's, in my mind, immediately anxiety-related and potential numbing out and the reason my little therapist D spidey senses go off like bing bang bing bing bang, with that is because phobias take over our life and make our life smaller. Almost like um in the same way I talk about how trauma can make our life really small because everything causes that fear response. Or, um, and for anybody who has struggled to leave their home, uh, why am I blanking on the name? I think it's because of metaphobia in my brain, but it'll come back to me. But when we struggle to leave our home because of our anxiety and our world gets really small, right? It's a it's a distraction technique. It's when we don't want to focus on what happened to us. We don't want to focus on the trauma we sustained. Instead, we'd rather focus on our fear of vomit. And oh my God, am I nauseous? Are they nauseous? People are getting sick. Oh my God, right? It's a distraction. And I know we could say like, It, You know, but it's real and I actually am afraid of it. I'm not saying it's not real. I'm just trying to better explain slash help you understand the reason it exists. Because again, we can't try to get rid of something if we don't understand why it's there. And so this is your biggest distraction. Okay. This is the most in your face, mucking up your days, mucking up your world, making you feel embarrassed and crazy. We need to tell our therapist about it. And my advice on how to work through it, you're not going to like, but here it is. When it comes to phobias in general, the best treatment via research. Now, if there's a new one that comes out, you guys let me know. But the best one time and time again is some form of exposure therapy. I know you hate it already. Anybody with a phobia hates it already, right? Agoraphobia, sorry, is the fear of leaving your house. I don't know why that was like in my brain somewhere, but couldn't come out. That happens. But we're going to have to expose ourselves to it. So let's, because emetophobia is your thing, and it's hard to probably talk about, let's leave it here. The example we'll use is agoraphobia, the fear of leaving our home. So if we're going to do exposure therapy first, we do, we build our resources. Good. We build up our resources and our coping skills so we can handle what's going to come up because engaging with the thing we're afraid of is going to increase our emotional reactivity and our dysregulation. And we need to have some tools and resources that can help us calm that down. Okay. So we're going to build those up. That's the first thing we do. Then we build our hierarchy. What's a a one on this list? That's like not really distressing, but like maybe for a minute. Okay. I'm good. And two and three, all the way up to 20 or 10, depending on how many you have and how slowly we want to work our way up but 20 or 10 would be like full-blown panic attack. And that would be like maybe you vomiting or watching someone vomit, right? Or sorry, not we're not doing that, leaving the house. That would be like you leaving your house and going to a big party. Okay? So that's your top thing. And so we slowly work our way up. That's the best way to manage. Now, phobias are almost always anxiety-driven, so anxiety medication could potentially reduce some of these symptoms and make exposure therapy a little bit more doable um but that's really what we need to work on and that's how that's going to get better for you i know my answer sucks um i know it's hard and your emetophobia is what you're using to distract from the ptsd and abuse would be my guess and your depression and anxiety are coming from that as well because obviously most of my patients with trauma have some form of depression whether it's diagnosable or not there's some symptoms there And anxiety, of course, because hypervigilance and all of that, it all kind of feeds in together. Let your therapist know. And I even have videos on exposure therapy if you want to like hear it again so you can kind of give yourself time to digest it. But that would be, that's my advice, okay? Now there was a comment that said, as an add-on, what would you suggest if someone with emetophobia has issues taking oral medication? I know you always talk about the importance of both therapy and medication, but my anxiety and phobia make it almost impossible to take anything. I've tried practicing like using food to swallow, but I find that even that doesn't work if my anxiety is too high. Um, a couple of ideas. I have patients who will, so here's a couple in this year and you're gonna be like, what? But a lot of SSRIs and SNRIs are antidepressants, things for anti-anxiety, are, di- are also, um, what's the word, approved for use in children, meaning a lot of them have liquid forms you can mix into water, you can take a shot of it. I don't know if that's going to help you, but that's a potential way to get it into your system without having to swallow it as a pill form, because that can be hard for a lot of people. A lot of people can't swallow pills also, by the way. And you can use things like, um, uh, I love Noon or Liquid IV. Those are like little powdery things to give flavor to your drink, but a lot, my mom loves Crystal Light or any kind of thing you can think of. If you want to put some of that in there. Um, do that too. So it like masks the flavor of the medicine. So that's one idea. Another is some have injectable forms. So you can go to the doctor and they can just poke you every couple months. Sometimes it's every month or every three months, depending on the medication. That could be another option as well. You could crush up your pills in like applesauce or yogurt or things like that. We're going to have to mask it. Now, I don't know if that really helps because you said using food to swallow. I'm talking crush that pill. I'm talking powder form, mix it in there, add some flavoring, or even have someone do it for you, that can help too, because then we didn't see it. And we, you know, even though we know it's in there, um, that can be a way as well. Um, Also, I am an advocate for the kind of like three, two, one, do it belief where like if I don't give my brain too much time to think about it, I can't get too worked up because the more we put it off, the worse it becomes. And I find when, when anyone's struggling to swallow, now this is for my patients who struggle just to swallow pills. And we worked on that for a while. Um, Don't drink too much water or whatever it is you're trying to drink it with. That becomes overwhelming and we can choke even more. And it's too, it's just too much. The smallest amount necessary, which I would argue is like maybe an ounce or two, that's all you need. I don't I think two ounces might be too much. Think of like, you know, if you're going to like throw something back, you're only going to want like a little bit of liquid to get that back there. So don't use too much. And that can be overwhelming to trigger that response. That's going to be worse. It's going to like circle. So those are my ideas. Talk to your therapist, talk to your pharmacy and see if there's other, uh, what's the word? Other other ways that your medication is administered, I guess, other types of it, like whether, you know, like I said, injectable liquid form, things like that, because they often have it. We just have to ask for it. Okay. Let's move on to question number five. This question says, hi, Katie, could you talk a bit more about disorganized attachment? Of course, happy to do it. Does it always root from abuse and fear of your caregiver? No, I'll talk about that a little bit. I check all the boxes for disorganized attachment, but I don't have any traumas, nor was I scared of my parents. Maybe sometimes I would get scared when one of my parents got mad, not at me. But other than that, I wasn't afraid of them. For context, I was emotionally neglected and parentified as a child. There you go. My parents worked a lot and I was often on my own from a very young age. Could there be a difference, a different cause for this, um, for this type of attachment? Thank you for all that you do. Okay. Great question. Now, disorganized attachment doesn't always have to do with fear of a caregiver. I think, honestly, I feel like we don't talk enough about disorganized attachment. For some reason, people always want to talk about anxious and avoidant. Maybe those are just more common. I don't really know. I haven't looked into the stats. However, a disorganized attachment is really when, I mean, when you talk about just the attachment theory, they say that a parent that would create a disorganized attachment is like frightening or is frightened, like your mo- your dad's beating your mom, your mom is scared, or your mom's beating your dad, your dad is scared, right? And so you're seeing this like frightening and frightened type of response. I would argue that it's more about the the fear that you felt. Okay, so hang in there with me. The fear that you felt being left alone, it's not that you were scared of your parent. You were frightened potentially by having to do everything on your own and being a parentified child from a very young age. Nobody really talks about how scary that can sometimes be for a kid, like having to lock the door and make sure nobody is in the house and like cook for themselves. And they're sitting by themselves for like a really long time. I know people think like, but you know, they're old enough to do that and that's fine. I know childcare is expensive. I'm not trying to judge anyone. I'm just talking about from the child's experience, that can be scary. What if the UPS man comes and knocks on the door and needs a signature and you're not supposed to open the door? That's scary for a kid. Depending on our age, we could that, we could be completely frightened. And I know as an adult, we're like, it's really not that big of a deal. But as a child, it is and it can be. So I believe that's kind of where this comes from for you. I don't think it's from, like you said, you weren't scared of your parents, but they were ne- you were neglected. Being neglected is is, is abuse, is a trauma, by the way. And it left you alone to make a lot of decisions and to do a lot of things on your own that you should not have had to do. And that can be really scary. Now, overall, disorganized attachment doesn't always mean that we're frightened of our parents. That's like when they first started talking about attachment theory, that was their theory. I believe disorganized attachment happens when our caregivers are in and out. We don't know what to expect. It's almost, I feel like in general, the the different attachment styles can happen when, it, when a parent isn't consistent in general in our life. Meaning we don't know how they're going to react or respond when they're here. We don't know if they're going to be there. We don't know when they're going to be gone next. We don't know. It's very unpredictable. Therefore, our attachment is unpredictable. That's kind of where disorganized comes from. As a child who who has disorganized attachment, for anybody who doesn't know, it really means that we exhibit symptoms of like inconsistency ourselves, right? We can, people will tell us like, we're really, uh, we can be really, uh, what's the word? Like people will inappropriately use the term bipolar. That's not the word I wanted to use. People say like, you're so fickle, you never you can't make up your mind sometimes you want to do things then you don't we flake on people it can be really unpredictable ourselves um we can have contradictory responses to things like yeah I want to do that but I also hate like I want to get on the boat I hate water right and you're like what I know that's a bad example but you know what I mean just like these contradictory things um we can do a lot of self-soothing behavior think of it kind of like you know pacing or Uh, rocking back and forth, we can do things like that to calm our system down because we feel very dysregulated. And we can want people close and then push them away kind of off and on. We can be very inconsistent in our relationships. Now, I believe that that's where your attachment, again, is coming from is the fear because you're left by yourself. It's not directly from your parents. And, And that's kind of that one issue, because if you guys don't know, I have that attachment workshop coming up. And that was kind of one of my issues with attachment theory And it's almost the same issue that I have with like the DSM and just certain things thinking that we have to like put people into boxes and everything is so clear and direct. Everybody's different. So you can't say, oh, a disorganized attachment comes from X, Y, Z. I I believe, just hang with me, the attachment comes more from our responses to what our parents did or didn't do. So each child's going to be different. Each person has a different level of resilience, a different level of support, a different circumstance. So what might create a disorganized attachment in one child creates an anxious in another, or maybe secure, maybe they're fine because their grandparents took them in and they had that as their primary caregiver. I don't know. And so I don't like to say like, oh, X, Y, and Z is definitely going to equate to this. But- I do understand what you're saying that like they say it's fear and I don't think it's there. And I, I want to argue against that, but also know that disorganized attachment has more to do with your reaction to what took place. And so the neglect in your household and the parentification and the emotional, was it emotional? Yeah. Emotionally neglected. So emotional abuse that you sustained that your reaction was disorganized attachment, if that makes sense. Okay. I hope that helps. Let's move on to question number six. This question says, Katie, I've been feeling like there's a wall between me and others for my whole life. Like I'm a ghost and nobody can ever can hear me or speak to me. And now when I'm a teenager, I feel this more than ever. What are your thoughts about this? How can I get rid of that feeling? For context, my dad almost never was talking to me, but my mom did so, um, did. So maybe this is relatable. Thank you for all that you do. Love from Poland. Of course, of course. Okay. There can be a couple of reasons we can feel like there's a wall between us and those that we are around or people that we love. Walls are protective. So this could be a defense mechanism. And the wall could be like, people don't fully know me and therefore they can't hurt me. Makes sense, right? It's protective. It's adaptive. Second, it could be part of dissociation because I'm not quite sure how you experience this, but said you feel like you're a ghost and nobody can hear you or speak to you. I'm wondering if we're dissociated and that can be a trauma response. It could be a way to cope with any kind of overwhelming stimuli or dysregulation. Maybe that's what's happening. Um, it could be that we struggle to identify our own emotions. Therefore, we don't know how to express them to others. And that could be part of what we call like alexithymia, um, which could be part of our depression, could be, could be part of just us, you know, being us. It can be hard to sometimes know how we feel and express that and feel safe doing so, especially if your dad was kind of emotionally absent. I don't know might not have been okay in your family. Also, I don't know culturally in Poland how well that is accepted. You know, everybody's different. Um, So those are some of the primary reasons that I believe we could feel like there's this wall between us and others. The most common being that first one, that protection, that it's a defense mechanism. If you don't really know me, then you can't get at me and you can't hurt me. So maybe ask yourself a few questions about this. Which do we think pertains to us the most? Do any of those things ring true? I think it's very common. Um, and the way that we get rid of that feeling, if you have access to therapy, I cannot encourage you to do it But enough, but please get into it if you can. I, it could be really, really helpful. Because I think if, okay, so if it is that like I'm being protective and this is my defense mechanism, then again, kind of going back to that like Chesterton's fence and the removal of some behaviors that we deem like bad or not healthy, we have to understand it first. So we have to see what purpose this is serving you. So this wall is protective in some form, right? What is it protecting us from? And if it's like a trauma response, then we need to take down that kind of reactivity, meaning we need some coping skills. We need some resources. We need some ways to deactivate our nervous system a little bit so that we can feel maybe slightly more safe or neutral than we do. We might need to... Um, process through some trauma so that we're not so hypervigilant. This could be kind of a symptom of hypervigilance. We could need to improve our own self-talk. This, because again, this is protective, right? So we could be spines out. People don't really know me. There's a wall between us because I think I'm a terrible person. I don't want everybody else to find out, right? So we need to improve that self-talk. So therapy can help you in a lot of different ways, Um, but it'll all depend on where this comes from and what purpose this kind of distance or wall uh, serves, and I think it's a protection in some form, but whether it's through dissociation, whether it's through, you know, you, only you're gonna know. But hopefully that kind of helps you get more context or insight into it, helps you better understand where it's coming from for you and gives you some options and things that you can work, with. okay? Let's move on to question number seven. It says, hello, Katie and Kenyans, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. It says, do you think clients have a responsibility when it comes to flashbacks, responsibility, hmm. My last therapist told me that I needed to practice self-control and use grounding techniques in session. Okay, if I had a flashback in session, she would end the session. What? Wait, wait maybe I'm reading this wrong. If I had a flashback in session, she would end the session when I came back and cancel the next session so that I could think about if I was really ready for therapy. What the actual fuck? Okay. I did whatever I could to not have flashbacks, especially in session, because I just felt so ashamed. What? Yeah, of course you did. And I felt like it was rude and wasting her time. No, she's a fucking terrible therapist. Still, they sometimes happen. I have a new therapist now. And last week I had a really intense flashback in in session and I was mortified. I apologized profusely. For some reason, I got tearful explaining that I really tried to come back quickly and everything. My current therapist said that it was okay and that I cannot control exactly, exactly my thoughts. I cannot control when flashbacks come anymore, any more than someone with seizures can. She said, there are things we can do to help, but this isn't my fault and to not feel guilty. And it says, Morgan Freeman voice narrates, she still feels guilty. I still feel guilty. I feel like I failed therapy because there didn't seem to be a noticeable trigger. There most often is not. Now I'm even more nervous of it happening again. What are your thoughts on this? How much control does a person have? How can I face my therapist again? What would you do if a client was in a flashback and couldn't get grounded at the end of session? I want to punch your old therapist in the face because of their ignorance. The fact that they think you can control a flashback is fucking jackassery. I don't know if they went to school. I don't know if they're pretending they went to school. I don't know what their fucking problem is, but they shouldn't see patients because this is so harmful what they're doing. Okay. Had to get that on my system. They're the worst. I would file a complaint. Hate them. Hate it big time. Okay. Your new therapist is beautiful and great. And I love her. The fact that she was like, you can't control it any more than someone having a seizure is 100% correct. Ding, ding, ding. Flashbacks are uncontrollable. I feel like that's part of the diagnostic criteria. I don't have my DSM on me right now because I didn't even think about it this far ahead. But that old ther- your old therapist is the fir- the fucking worst. So you don't have control over having a flashback. Not all of them have identifiable triggers all the time the work and therapy is to figure out maybe what that trigger could have been. A lot of times that takes like tracking back, right? Okay. We had a flashback. We need to track back and we need to try to identify some of the triggers. Often it's like weeks of things happening and us not recognizing our emotional experience because we're disconnected. And so a huge part of therapy is understanding those things or acknowledging that and trying to reconnect slowly, but surely. Okay. Just so people kind of know, like how you work to treat flashbacks and triggers and anxiety attacks or whatever you want to call them, right? Flashbacks just happened to us, right? We could have had smelled something that reminded us of our abuser in a elevator two weeks ago and felt that buildup and then had this loud sound happen and boom, we have a flash. I don't know. You know what I mean? There's no... Uh, your therapist pisses me. The old therapist pisses me off. Okay. So anyway, sorry, I'm getting... I'm getting dysregulated. So your current therapist is correct. Flashbacks come and go. Sometimes we have them. Sometimes we know the triggers, Sometimes we don't. Could have been built up. Also, I find people are more um, susceptible to flashbacks when our resilience is low. So if we have a super stressful week at work or we have something go wrong in our life or something just maybe more people asking things for us in home or with friends it doesn't even matter it could even be good stress people don't talk about that enough either like we could be putting on a birthday party for a friend or ourselves or we could be about to go on vacation and even though that's all exciting stuff it's still stress and stress is overwhelming and if our resi- our window of resilience or window of tolerance is really low flashbacks can be can come more quickly and you know last longer just more frequent all that stuff okay Now that I've gotten that out of my system, God, your therapist was terrible. I'm so sorry. So, my thoughts on this are that you don't have that much control over it, but what we do have control over is whether or not we just allow them to happen without reflecting on them. And so, it's what do we do after? Okay. So, that's a lot of the the homework. Like I said, like figuring out what the triggers might have been. How did we experience it? Were there any signs and symptoms before it happened? There may be, there may not be. Again, no judgments. We're just being detectives. We're trying to figure out where the flashback came from. We won't always be able to find that out, but it does help to try because sometimes then we can better, better work, I guess, put together a better treatment plan or better coping skills or better resources for managing that. If we are able to identify again, big if, right? So that's kind of where we start. Flashbacks will get more intense as we work through trauma and then go down as we process through things and like successfully process certain memories and things like that. So you'll get there. Now, when a patient in session can't get grounded, I don't end session. That's why therapists run late sometimes, by the way. Um, I usually, if a patient, if we're getting into stuff that's really intense and I'm worried about things like this, dissociation, flashback, panic attacks, all that jazz... I plan to end the intensive part of therapy at least 20 minutes before the session is supposed to end. Because really that gives us 20 minutes and then an extra 10 before my next patient. But if it takes longer, it takes longer. If I know a patient of mine struggles with this, we come up with some plans ahead of time. Okay, so if you are dysregulated, what what is helpful when you're having a flashback and you can't get grounded? What can I do? Same with dissociation. I've talked about this, right? Like, is it okay for me to touch your back, put a hand on your shoulder or no? Does that make it, does that make it worse? Depends on the person. Do you want me to put on music? Do you want me to um, keep asking you questions? Is it better if I stay quiet? Do you want me to go get you some ice or some ice water? Like we'll plan ahead of time so that when you're dysregulated and you're stuck in a flashback that I can do as much as I can within my power to bring you back. Is it 100% you know, uh, work 100% of the time? No, but it's better than me not having any tools. And a lot of times I end up just sitting with patients when they dissociate or have a flashback and just every couple minutes, let's say your name is Sally. I'll just say, you know, Sally, I'm still here. Are you back with me? How are you doing? You can come towards my voice, you know, depending on how we, but it's things like that if you you can come out of it, you're sitting on the couch. I might even initiate grounding techniques for you. I might say, remember you're sitting on my, I used to have this white couch. You're sitting on this white couch and remember it's really soft and you kind of like it, but it also like really like engulfs you. Can you feel your back against that? Can you feel your, your legs as they fold and your feet are on the ground? Do you feel that? Remember that fuzzy pillow next to you? Can you reach out and touch it? I might just start initiating things like that and to keep talking and try to make eye contact with you. Does it work 100% of the time? No, but I'm going to keep doing it. And that's, that's what we do. Your other therapist was a dickwad and I hate their guts. And that's not, that's so like, talk about compounding shame. What a prick. Makes me so angry. Flashbacks are not your responsibility in the way that she made them to be. What's your responsibility is learning about them, better understanding why they're happening so that you can heal. Being mad that you have a flashback is akin to like, A doctor getting mad that you have an infection. You're like, dude, my body's just doing the best it can. It was wounded. It's trying to recover. Yeah. Yeah, So I'm so sorry. Nothing is wrong with you. You're doing the best you can. I'm so proud of you for finding another therapist. I'm so proud of you for continuing to work on this and know that it will get better. Okay. Okay. Final question. Question number eight says, happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. Says, do you have some tips for when you're overwhelmed? And it feels like using coping skills are making things worse. I had some very busy weeks and I need some rest, but my body and mind are still in action mode. Just doing nothing is so hard at the moment. Coping skills like breathing exercises or body scans are not working for me. Those inward coping skills are making me more anxious. Outward coping skills are helping me most of the time, but these coping skills do require a lot of thinking and using your brain. And that means that my mind is still working hard. Do you have some tips or tricks that could try to put my body and mind at ease? Okay. So in general, if we have coping skills that aren't helping and instead are making something worse, throw those out. They're not helpful. We don't want them here. Bye-bye. I have that whole video with, it's called 25 coping skills. So you can just look up 25 coping skills, Katie Morton, it'll pop up. There's actually 24 in the video. And then the comments are filled with a gazillion more. But what I'm assuming we need to do here, because if the coping skills that you're using are making it worse, and it's those internal ones, then we need more distraction-based or what I would call regulating coping skills, because it's you can't rest. So we're talking about sleep here, it sounds like. And so my initial reaction or initial thoughts are, instead of looking for coping skills specifically, we need to have some rituals around bedtime. I actually have a video, I think it's called Five Tips for Better Sleep. You can look that up on YouTube as well. Um, We have to have a ritual around bedtime and we need to engage almost roughly the same time. So start the ritual, let's say like 9 p.m. or whatever, if we're trying to go to bed by 10 or you work backwards from whenever your bedtime is and give yourself like an hour or an hour and a half of kind of wind down time. And I know you're gonna hate this, Don't get on your phone at least a half hour before bed. That light in the back of your phone fucks with your brain's ability to make you sleep and to release melatonin. And don't take melatonin; it's not very good for you. It's a hormone we shouldn't be taking it. I know I've said it in the past; I take it back. The more research that comes out, the worse it is. The um, physicians and sleep specialists say better options are things like magnesium, L-theanine, Apigen. Talk to your doctor and make sure that it's okay for you to take those types of supplements. But we find those to be more, uh, more effective and better for our system overall. Melatonin is a no-go. Okay. So we need to have a ritual. We need to have um, other ways to calm our system down and prepare us for sleep and for rest. And if we start to feel like we're in action mode and our mind is racing, Full body shakes and cold water on our face are going to be the best things that we can do. I know that sounds crazy, but we find lowering our body temperature a couple degrees before bed helps us fall asleep more quickly. So get out of bed or right before bed and do a full body shake. I mean, stomp your feet, shake your hands out, move your head from right to left. Like you're trying to shake all the water off your body. Shake it out. What that does is it triggers your nervous system to release any cued up energy, that kind of action mode or that like (gasps) internal anxiety we feel. It gives it an opportunity to release. Is it hundred percent effective? No, but I find it to be very effective for myself. If you're in bed and you're too tired, you don't want to stand up. You can flop around like a fish. No one's judging you. You can do that. So if you're still like, but that didn't help, it only helped like 20%. You need to go in your bathroom and I want you to fill your sink with as cold water as you can get. If that means you need to, go to, need to go into the kitchen and get some ice and throw ice in it, do that too. And I want you to dunk, just up. don't put your ears under, but just dunk your face, poop, like your forehead to your ears into the water. And what that does is it not only changes temperature and it it like, <gasps> and it causes our system to release again, some of that queued up energy, but it also triggers our diving re- reflex, which Allows the vagus, it stimulates the vagus nerve and it calms us down. Win win, two birds, one stone, all that good stuff. Give those things a try, along with having a routine around bed and not getting on a device. Now, that means no TV, no phone, no iPad, no laptop, no nothing. If we can clean up our sleep space and our sleep time, you will feel the difference. Um, Also, put your phone on Do Not Disturb. I know that sounds crazy. But if someone really needs to get a hold of you, they'll call a few times, and it'll bust through, you know, it like breaks through the do not disturb. But don't, you know, we have to hold that time sacred. We have to take care of ourselves because we can't pour from an empty pitcher. We don't have to be accessible to people all the time. And sometimes we need to rest, right? We're not robots. So use some of those tools and keep me posted. Now, there was a comment on this. This is the last comment. Uh, there's only one on here. And it says, as an, oh, no, actually, there's two, sorry. <laughs> as an add-on, What if you are overwhelmed and cannot think logically and can't remember any coping skills? You write those suckers down and you keep them in a place where you can see them. I've had patients put them on post-it notes on their mirrors, put them in your phone and notes, uh, put them on your bedside table, write them down in a place where you can easily access them and see them when you can't think clearly. It's really important that we write them down because for most of us, we can't think clearly. And if we're not sleeping well, it's even worse. So write them down and keep them in multiple places so that you don't have to recall. Okay? Okay. It can also help to have some of the tools you're going to need to do a certain thing nearby. Okay, another add-on. What if your therapist tells you you should try coping skills, but in your opinion, if you decided to use coping skills, you already said no to the wrong behavior, self-harm, then you don't need coping skills, actually. Do you? Sorry, guys, there were way more add-ons than I thought. (laughs) It said, um, so that one, it's interesting, just because we didn't do the behavior doesn't mean that we don't need the coping skill because the emotional experience or what we were trying to express through in this example is self-injury through our self-harm. We were trying to express our pain. We were trying to express upset, anger, excitement, whatever. Um, We still need to process that. And so I would encourage you if you've already distracted enough or done something, because there's distraction-based coping skills and process-based coping skills. And if we've distracted enough or pushed through and we didn't do the behavior, the self-injury, then I would move into the process-based coping skills like an impulse log or journaling or talking to a friend or texting with your therapist or whatever you have access to. I would move into those so that we can better understand where that urge came from, what helped us not engage with it, so that we can learn from our successes just as much as we learn from the failures, right? It's just as important and it's all part of the process. And so I believe you still do need coping skills. It might just be a different type. And it might not, we might not have to spend like an hour doing it. It might be like a 10 minute thing. Like jot down some of your thoughts about it. What helped you? What feeling were you trying to express? Like impulse logs don't have to take a long time, but it's important that we do some of that work so that we learn from this. Okay. Final add on for reels now. <laughs> I am wondering if you have ideas of how to be comfortable sleeping somewhere that isn't home without medication, herbs and supplements. Sensory things like 54321, progressive muscle relaxation and deep breathing overstimulate me from um oh so yeah, from day 1. So how can I get more comfortable sleeping from day 1? I have to go to get multiple sleep latency tests in a sleep lab. I've always hated these because no one sleeps well in those things and it messes you up. And I'm on a timer to fall asleep. I've got 20 minutes to nap each time I am scheduled to nap in order to demonstrate the problem I experience every day at home of sleeping too much and difficulty staying awake so that insurance can cover the care that I need. Insurance doesn't consider the home version valid where I demoed my sleep being excessive because it's not standardized. In sleep labs, especially being pressured to perform, like normal, and fall asleep on a very short timer in a new environment with all these wires all over me is so much anxiety that I've never been able to fall asleep under the test conditions due to that anxiety. And they don't want me to take calming or wake promoting medicine because those invalidate the results. I'm planning to ask if I can visit the lab the day before. Good idea bring some herbal tea and comfy jammies and blankets and home things to help with the help with familiarity going in. But do you have any other ideas to help combat the test conditions creating so much anxiety that I don't sleep like a baby, which is how I sleep every other day of my life. I'm autistic if that helps put things into context. But again, all those other things don't work. They throw her into fight flight. Many other relaxations, Techniques for high anxiety, like the other TIPP skills, are more likely to be wake promoting. So, I don't know that those are the best defaults after that. I don't know if it's the best either. My best advice is to start with that ritual at home. Get yourself in kind of a ritual to help you fall asleep and nap or whatever's happening. Like, let's pay attention to what we're doing and let's try to recreate that. They have to understand that it's not comfortable to be there. I think this is, sometimes our medical system and like the way it interacts with mental health is just like asinine. But a couple of things, I've had a few patients go in for like sleep testing and stuff. And my best advice is to have a ritual that you do and to ensure you can continue that ritual at the sleep center. Another idea, I don't know what you're hoping to showcase for them, but I've had patients who are like, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to sleep to know if they have sleep apnea or what's going on. And I was like, just try to get up early the day that you know you have to go there so that it'll be easier for you to fall asleep because you've been up longer. Like you're more tired, you know, not to say don't get a full night's rest the night before, but make sure that like by the time you have to go there, you're exhausted. That's helpful too. And I know it can feel like, but that's not the real result. They're not letting you do it in your home and they cannot expect you to walk into this like sterilized environment and not your own bed. Hopefully you can bring your own pillows because that would fuck me up. I couldn't sleep without my pillows you know, gets you comfortable so that you can sleep. But that ritual can help in like getting yourself ready, um, doing a full body shake and do the things you need to do. Don't feel weird about it. You have to take care of yourself and try to find a way to calm your system down. Um, even just repeating, like putting a hand, I don't know if this will overstimulate you, but just hang with me. You said like the breathing exercises. Sometimes put a hand on a chest and stomach and like repeating some helpful mantra can help. Um, or even just like pressure points in our hands like just relaxing um, and, you know, squeezing kind of along can help, but I think the ritual is going to be the best and making sure that you're tired when you show up there. Okay. I wish I had better advice. It's uncomfortable for everybody. There, there isn't really anything we can do about the fact that that environment doesn't feel homey, doesn't feel comfortable. It's, it it takes us a minute, but if we have that ritual, at least our brain and body are kind of know, okay, we're getting ready for bed. And it kind of starts to prepare, meaning it starts to release the melatonin that we need helps us fall asleep more quickly also showing up tired is going to help too okay keep me posted thank you all so much for sending in your questions thank you so much for sharing this podcast and for listening it really really means the world to me have a wonderful rest of your week do your homework and i'll see you next time bye i'm done with my work. anything